And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be, around this rotating globe, which is getting warmer and warmer and warmer. We'll get to that in a minute. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn when, well, almost anything can happen. And I've been saying that now for five or six years. And as I've also said before, you'll notice that that anything can happen thing is happening like 24-7. You know, breaking news can happen any moment. It's uh, uh, planetary shaking. Um, in fact, that's going to be the subject of our program this morning, which is the planet. And those who are attempting to leave it to save it. And I'll explain in detail what I mean by that as the morning ensues. Before we get to our guest, uh, who's an old friend and uh, colleague of mine, and we're going to have a really intriguing time talking about this this revolution we're now obviously at the beginning of. Uh, let me hit a couple of news items. If If you're new to the show, we have something called Radio with Pictures, which means you can follow along on your device with images and links and video and all that stuff. And normally, uh, I recommend people kind of save that till after the show when you're looking at the archive and when you have time to pause things and come up to speed because the way this program moves in real time, it's uh, you don't want to be caught looking at a link when the conversation is moving at uh, high speed. So I would recommend except for brief news items that you uh, kind of hold off on looking at the substance of the detail until you're you're listening to the archive. If you're a member of Club 19.5, of course, you have uh, extraordinary luxury to do that any time of day or night um, when you want to. Well, what you want to do if you're new to this is you want to go to the other side of midnight.com, that's our URL, click on tonight's banner, which says rather provocatively, the second age of space. And uh, this is a graphic that was produced by uh, uh, the New York Post, which I think kind of summarizes where we are tonight. Because we have something called, well, in, in some headline writers' minds, it was the Battle of the Billionaires. Actually, it's much, much bigger. So, um, We'll get into that in a minute. Anyway, click on that banner for Saturday night, July 24th. That will take you to the guest page. Right under there, you will see flash links to items, mine and David's. Click on mine. That will take you down to my first item, which is we're expecting here in the great American Southwest, extending across the central part of the United States later in the week, and then to the East Coast by the middle of the week. Um... Another significant and very, very uh, sultry heat wave. These domes of high pressure, these stationary high pressure zones, which uh, Dane Wigington and I discussed, uh, uh, I think last week, um, they are they are with us, and it. He is of the opinion that they are being artificially maintained. I'm of the opinion, based on similar data, that they're part of the evolution of the world's climate and that uh, human activities are not maintaining them. But of course, that's an argument which will go on. The, 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 the bottom line, however, is that they are not good for beagles or begonias down on Earth. And until we have a significant uh, ability to literally perform geoengineering on a planetary scale, 
which has upsides but no downsides or foreseeable downsides that can be controlled, we are, as the planet warms, as our content of carbon in the atmosphere increases, as the methane, which is the really insidious part of this, uh, he, he was very accurate about that, the release of methane from Siberia, the uh, sublimation of clathrates uh, under the oceans at shallow depth as the uh, ocean waters warm and mix and warm those up above the freezing point, that increase in methane is much more deleterious and it is occurring much faster than the standard climate models and the computers have predicted. And that's why we are not looking on the horizon at climate change and global warming. It is here, and it's going to be here coming this week. So everyone get prepared. Take a look at item number one and be prepared accordingly. Now, item number two, um, we're going to be talking tonight about the battle for space, the beginning of what I have termed for many, many years the second age of space, which in many ways is is a memorialization of the way things would have evolved if it hadn't been for the Cold War, for the Soviet Union, for the first space race uh, to achieve a political objective, a la Kennedy and uh, then Khrushchev. And we've kind of gotten lulled into thinking, I think a lot of people, certainly people who did not live through it, that this is the normal state of affairs, that governments, you know, occupy space, explore space, try to achieve the high ground of space. Uh, that's what the whole Space Force is about. And the private sector <clears throat> kind of plays a minor role. Well, if you look at some history of the technological development of air travel in the early parts of the last century, the 20th century, you can see that that's not the way things normally develop at all. In fact, in major transportation revolutions, it was not government that led the way. It was government that lagged. It was private enterprise. It was the free market. It was, you know, the robber barons who achieved the great, you know, extraordinary revolutions that united a continent and made the uh, middle class even possible. So we're going to talk about some of those comparisons tonight as we delve into the history of, for instance, the uh, development of commercial aviation, which is a very interesting template for what I think we are now seeing on the space horizon. Um, apropos of that, you might want to check out item number two in my items and radio with pictures. Uh, this is from Time Magazine, uh, published just a few days ago. Um, actually, it was... Uh, on the 52nd anniversary of Apollo 11, 52 years to the day when Apollo 11 landed as a major government activity on the moon. But decades before Apollo 11 and the NASA effort and the space race and two gargantuan governments vying for the hearts and minds of the planet through demonstration of technological supremacy, there was a book written by an old, old friend of mine who, of course, is no longer with us. His name was Robert Heinlein. 
And he wrote a book, a very interesting book, called The Man Who Sold the Moon. And up until the political earthquakes of the Cold War and the space race vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union and NASA and Kennedy and Khrushchev, that was the template for how we would someday go to the moon. It may, in fact, become the template for real. The template, again, we're, we're going to talk about this this morning. But anyway, you might want to check out the item number two, <clears throat> which says rather intriguingly, forget the Bezos and Branson space flights. The real deal happens this fall. So let me read you a couple of paragraphs and you will give you some perspective. And this, of course, is also going to be part of our conversation throughout the morning. This has been a big month for billionaires in space. On July 11th, Richard Branson flew aboard his Virgin Galactic VSS Unity to a height of 80 kilometers, that's 50 plus miles, at a suborbital altitude returning safely to the Earth and earned his astronaut wings in the process. Uh, there's a caveat there which we'll get to in a minute. Tuesday morning last, Jeff Bezos followed on the 52nd anniversary of Apollo 11, flying his Blue Origin New Shepherd ship even higher, 100 kilometers, that's uh, 62 miles up, and similarly joined the astronaut club again. There is a hiccup there, which we'll get to momentarily. The media did what media will always do in situations like this, present company, present company included, that means Time Magazine, which was to find a catchy hook, billionaire space race, and devote no end of coverage to the Branson-Bezos doings, and with good reason. The technology is nifty, the achievements are real, and both Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic aim to open flights to the public to, or at least the vanishingly small portion of the public that can afford a six-figure fare, sorry about that, for little more than a 10-minute flight to and from space. And it goes on like that, but let me, let me get down to the third paragraph. That the storm of press has thus far largely overlooked a much bigger space deal coming in September, and I, uh, another billionaire, Jared Isaacman, the CEO of Shift4 Payments, an online payments company, which goes aloft with three other civilian astronauts aboard a SpaceX Crew Dragon spacecraft in a mission dubbed Inspiration 4. Never mind 10 suborbital minutes, this will be a three-day trip to orbital space, LEO, low Earth orbit, at an altitude higher than that of the International Space Station. And never mind the idea of flying the mission simply to open up the market to more tourists. Inspiration 4 is intended to raise funds and awareness for St. Jude's Children's Hospital and Research Center in Memphis, Tennessee. Isaacson may not have the celebrity sizzle of a Branson or a Bezos, but both the ambition of his mission and its philanthropic purpose set it apart from Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin's brief space hops. And you can read the rest of it there yourself. It's item number two. So what we really have is a contretemp between two suborbital technologies, Branson and Bezos, versus, you know, the familiar player in this field, Elon Musk. 
and his long-range game, which is in orbit, has been in orbit for many, many months now, and is intending to go far beyond low Earth orbit, ultimately to and beyond the planet Mars. Item number three. However, in this billionaire space race, to coin a, you know, co-opt Time Magazine's term, there is some caveats. We're going to talk about the details tonight, and that will be item number three. I'm going to get back to number three when we bring David on, because I think it's important that we have a kind of a colloquy on what this means for the long-range, what, touristification of space, even low-Earth orbit. Anyway, item number four. Now, this is where things get intriguing, because if you watched on live television both the Branson trip, which I did, and the Bezos trip, which I did, uh, you notice that after they landed, according to the FAA rules under which NASA and the military also fly, if you exceed the height of 50 miles, 50 miles, five zero miles, you become under the FAA rules, an astronaut. And so both sets of pioneers, Branson and Bezos, and both sets of passengers who went with them, uh, both Branson's crew and Bezos' crew, which included both the youngest and the oldest uh, flyers into space, uh, Wally Funk and uh, Oliver Daimon, um, they all got awarded astronaut wings. Well, there's a news story coming out this week which basically says, uh, you might want to hold on that. And let me read you a couple of items from that. All right. This is according to, uh, uh, let me see, this is the Washington Examiner, which is usually very reliable in, in these kinds of things. Amazon founder Jeff Bezos and his fellow Blue Origin, oop, 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 don't do that, don't do that. Oh, I hate it when things do, no, no, don't want to do that. Gotta get rid, why, why can't I get rid of that? No, thanks. There we are. My computer is acting up tonight. Amazon founder Jeff Bezos and his fellow Blue Origin space travelers might not qualify to receive Federal Aviation Administration awarded astronaut wings for their Tuesday flight. The agency's Office of Commercial Space Transportation changed its eligibility rules for its commercial space astronaut wings program on Tuesday, the 20th the same day the four passengers launched in the New Shepard to require that recipients perform some activity in space during their flight related to public or human flight safety during the flight, along with meeting basic requirements under FAA regulation to be qualified as a flight crew, a candidate must fly beyond 50 miles above the surface of the Earth into space, which Blue Origin did by reaching 62 miles. However, crew members must have, quote, demonstrated activities during the flight that were essential to public safety or contributed to human spaceflight safety, according to the rule. And then the rules are listed there. And of course, what they don't say is whether the Branson flight um, uh, actually beat out the rule because you can't have a rule which of course is retroactive that's uh, kind of like changing the law after you've broken it so it may be that branson got his wings just in time 
and Bezos did not. Well, that's going to be a cat among the pigeons if I ever heard one. And we will, of course, be discussing that with um, with uh, David in a, in a minute. Item number five. While all this is going on, Elon Musk, who, of course, is a real pioneer in space, including deep space missions. Remember when he tested his Falcon Heavy a couple years ago and he launched his beautiful little red roadster into a long elliptical orbit, which takes it beyond the orbit of Mars and well inside the orbit of the Earth. Well, NASA has now given SpaceX $178 million to launch its mission to Jupiter and the uh, uh, moon Europa in many, many years, I think by the 2030s, and it will be on a Falcon Heavy. So while the other two are competing for who's going to get astronaut wings, Musk is not only sending human crews to the International Space Station and providing the vehicle in which the Inspiration4 crew will go into orbit this fall, but he's also now staked a claim in NASA's real resin d'etre, which is exploring where no one has gone before, in this case, the little moon of Jupiter known as Europa, which decades ago, I forecast would have living systems in its ocean under its ice cover, and now Musk is making possible by sending the spacecraft into space to Jupiter on a Falcon Heavy, which is going to ultimately answer my age-old question. On that note, my guest this morning to talk about the second age of space, which we entered over the last uh, few days, is Dr. David Livingston, the founder and host of The Space Show. In the ten and a half years and close to 1,700 interviews he's done, it's the nation's only talk radio program exclusively focusing on space commerce, space tourism, and facilitating our becoming a space-faring economy and society. Dr. Livingston is also the executive director of the Giant Leap Foundation, the 501c3 that controls the space show and promotes space education. David is also an adjunct professor of space studies in the Odegaard School of Aerospace Sciences at the University of North Dakota. He has a BA in political science, an MBA specializing in international business management, and a doctorate in business administration. His dissertation was titled, Outer Space Commerce, Its History and Prospects. So without further ado, David, welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. Hi, Richard, and thank you very much for uh, having me back. A couple of a quick, uh, to be honest, uh, corrections. The show is now in its 20th year, Richard. Oh, my God. Believe. 4, 000, we're closing in on 4,000 interviews, and I retired several years ago from teaching at North Dakota, so that's in my past. It's uh, an old bio. we got to update these things. Yeah. Okay, well, and, it's always better to have more rather than less. <laughs> Clearly, and uh, it's always better to outperform what is written down. Exactly. Okay, we got about 10 minutes to the bottom of the hour. Let me start off with the big, 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 big picture. What is your assessment of what has taken place this week, a la Branson and Bezos? Uh, well, I, since my 
doctoral dissertation was about space tourism, I'm, I'm actually thrilled that it's finally happened after, I guess, 20 to 24 years, depending on which company we're talking about. And a uh, long time coming. And uh, I hope it really does manifest with these two companies as a real business. And they start doing routine flights and, and have customers and publish their pricing and and uh, the industry gets off because it has a real potential to not only be a, an economic barn burner, which the country could certainly use, but um, it's innovation and, and experimentation. I mean, uh, lots and lots of things are happening. You know, Virgin has a sister company that does sounding rocket experimental flights that the private sector can book that you know you don't have to go months and months and waiting and waiting and pay over price to to use a nasa sounding rocket system so there's lots that can happen the potential ball is overflowing and um, i'm anxious to see it happening i'm i'm surprised at the amount of anti-space publications magazine articles that i've been seeing since uh, late last year but really this year, I'm, I'm surprised at people that I, I thought were learned, especially journalists, that um, are just spitting out true garbage about space tourism, private sector going to space. And I'm even more surprised that it seems like there are people managing policy and actions in the government that um, want to put obstacles up to, like the, like the FAA to get commercial astronaut wings, you got to do something good. I wonder who's really behind that. Um, kind of amplify that because uh, I'll tell you my visceral reaction, given that I watched live because I played hooky, you know, uh, Alan Shepard go up on, on Mercury, um, the Mercury spacecraft in that suborbital hop. I really kind of recoiled inside at the idea of freely giving out all these astronaut wings for just being kind of like a passenger, almost what they used to call spam in a can. Uh, and I'm intrigued that the FAA, the very morning of Bezos' flight, took control and basically has revised the rule. And so now you have to really do something. You have to be more than just a passenger to qualify for something which a very select group of people uh, on this planet have, have deservedly been given. And I just don't think that being a tourist that goes 50, 60 miles up qualifies you to be an astronaut. Well, um, if, if they're looking for something that, that says you have to do something for astronaut safety, the very fact that these guys rode a, a risky rocket were, were neophytes, the rocket was neophytes, only had a few test flights, seems to me that, that they push the envelope on doing something for safety because they made it and took the risk and showed that uh, that it was safe and that they can come back. So I I think, both on Virgin as well as Blue, that they met the public safety requirement that this has, but um, they do have a classification as a commercial astronaut wing versus, I guess, a, a NASA or an Air Force astronaut wing, and uh, maybe that commercial astronaut wing uh, implies uh, a little lower activity standard or something than what you would uh, get with NASA, which would obviously be a lot more training and uh, probably even more risk because the rockets are far more powerful and, and work differently. Uh, but I think they met public safety by 
taken the barnstorming risk to go and and prove that that it was safe and they did prove that it was safe at least for these early days and um, hopefully it continues to be safe well i don't know i it, it, in all fairness i think there should be a two-tier system so that if you do risk your life and limb and make one of these you know hops you get something but you don't you're not in the same class as Shepard or, or Glenn or Armstrong or whatever. It, it just seems to me there's something wrong viscerally about awarding astronaut wings to people that really don't deserve it. Now, Wally Funk, I think, is an exception because she flew everything the Mercury guys did and then some. And according to the reports I've seen, she actually did better on some of the tests than Glenn himself. And yet NASA just froze her out politically. I think it was even above NASA. I, I saw a, a story the other day that Lyndon Johnson himself penned in the margin of some memo, no, you know, over my dead body or something, that women would ever fly in, 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 in the Mercury program. So there was overt, absolute, you know, uh, destruction of their careers at a time when if a woman had flown as a co-equal Imagine where we would be now in terms of the sociology of space, in terms of, you know, looking at female requirements, which, of course, are, are part of the whole uh, tourist thing long term, um, to say nothing of careers, job opportunities, you know, the perspective of women and men as equal in the human. In other words, so many things could have changed if Johnson had not been, you know, an SOB about this. True. Well, first of all, it is a commercial astronaut wing, which I think is a separate class from NASA. And I think if you saw somebody with a commercial astronaut wings on, you'd realize they went to space. But let's say they're standing next to uh, any one of the shuttle pilots or, or whoever went up on the Well, on the, the thing that was confusing to me, and I actually watched, obviously, the coverage in, in great detail... Each of the companies, Virgin and Blue Origin, designed separate wings. Not, there's a, no one standard, yeah. you know, which I found kind of strange, because as I've known it, you know, the astronaut wings are basically designed by the U.S. government and awarded as part of an official process, and they don't leave it up to the company or to, let's say, NASA to design them or something. So... I, go ahead. Well, I, my memory is is not great on this, but I remember years ago this was a, a big issue as to whether they were going to get astronaut wings. And my memory is, and I guess somebody could do the research on this fairly quickly, that um, they were not going to get government astronaut wings, but they would be entitled to the term astronaut, to be called astronauts, if they, at the time, because Virgin said that in the early days they were going to pass the Van Karman line, which they didn't do. So at the time, space was, for space tourism, defined as above the 62-mile limit. So they could use the astronaut term, but they would not be getting U.S. government astronaut wings. So I, somehow, I, I'm, this is coming back to me, and I remember this discussion early on, and there was controversy even at that time, about would they be able to call themselves astronauts. So I think the companies probably never thought they were going to get 
government astronaut wings, which is why they would design their own. And I understand from what the FAA is doing, they're labeling them commercial astronauts to distinguish them regular U.S. government, NASA, or Air Force or Navy astronauts. So in a sense, there is a two-tier system. And, um, yeah, the only problem, David, if you're confused and I'm confused, the average American, when they hear astronaut, they're going to think, oh, this guy's or this gal is the same as Armstrong or Lovell or Shepard or whatever. I mean, uh, there, there's a need for an education here and a clear distinction. I'll tell you what, hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is David Livingston. I should say Dr. David Livingston. And we are going to be talking about uh, commercialization of space, criticization how we can get into space, how maybe I can get into space. That'd be intriguing. Anyway, I thought this was an appropriate piece of music to take us out in this segment. Enjoy the magnificent men in their flying machine. As you continue to work on yourself, the tribe comes forward. They'll come right to your door. So just keep doing the work and it'll come together. Yep, as you increase your frequency, then you become more mature in your manifestation abilities. And your other higher senses and gifts come online and then you have more power to make your world different and better and how you want it. And so that's why working on yourself is so important because then you're going to create the reality that you want rather than get sucked into the dystopia that's being created 
by the negative or shadow side. We're becoming uh, Renaissance men and women where we have multiple skill sets and we can dance from science into art and we can use both sides of our hemispheres and we can realize how much we have to really offer and uh, grow into. And this is what's happening now. This is where we're headed into a really beautiful place. So we can rejoice in that despite the fear, despite what it looks like on the outside. This is how disease transforms. The mess in the chaos is necessary in order to see what you have before you so you can clean it up and just make decisions to change your reality. If you don't see it, how do you know it's there to even be changed? Or if you ignore it, right? Then how can you make the differences? You can't. So the mess is before us, accept our mess, and now know that that's part of empowerment to be able to see and to be able to transform it. Hi, this is Amanda Vollmer, and I was on the other side of the news and I really enjoy my time discussing deeper topics and really getting to the heart of truth and the things that matter in this world and what we are doing and why we're here and, and what we're heading toward. I really recommend listening in and, and learning, uh, expanding your awareness and your knowledge. It's important and these are the times to do it and we're being asked to pay attention and to challenge ourselves and uh, think beyond, beyond the box. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, July 24th, 2021. My guest this morning is David Livingston, and we're talking about space tourism, the commercialization of space, the, the segue, or maybe the symbiosis between government activities and commercial space activities, and for God's sakes, maybe the lowering of the price, the cost, so all of us can follow the fifth dimension. Take a listen. So, David, what has been the pre-prohibition against this happening much earlier than both you and I uh, 
uh, have seen happen. I mean, I remember back during the Reagan administration when he established the idea of, you know, commercial space uh, somehow fostered by the U.S. government, if not by NASA, which was vigorously opposed for many, many years, as you you know, and I guess our audience should should know some details about that. But what what do you think took this long for this to come about? Uh, can I give you the facts on the astronaut thing? Because I looked it up. Yeah, by all means. So uh, prior to the X Prize in 2004, the government awarded astronaut wings. And they were government astronaut wings, even if you worked for a commercial company, but were paid and trained uh, on a NASA mission. So, for example, if Lockheed had somebody doing something in space for a NASA mission, even though they're a commercial company, they got government astronauts. So under, under, with, an, un, un, under a NASA contract. Right. So that changed in 2004 when the X-Prize was won by uh, Scaled Composites. And those, then NASA, then the FAA created commercial astronaut designation to separate those from government astronauts. And when uh, Virgin did their test, plot, test flights, those pilots that made it to space got commercial astronaut wings as well, on the, even though they weren't uh, carrying passengers back then. And so that's the start of the separate designation. There was no criteria for what you have to do other than uh, you have to go above 50 miles in the U.S. if it's the international astronaut uh, designation. It's the Van Karman line of 62 kilometers. But for the U.S., it's 50 miles. So that the history of a separate designation for commercial astronauts began with the X Prize being won in 2004. Now, if they really do go forward and say you have to do something useful, and it's not, as I suggest, surviving a risky flight, because maybe that does add to safety, then that would be a new addition to the commercial astronaut wing designation. And those that have already gotten their wings would probably still get to keep their wings, the, the early Virgin pilots, the X-Prize pilots, etc. And if they aren't, if they can't post ex, ex post facto a law change, I guess for Blue, it would depend on the actual time that the FAA issued this change to do something <laughs> useful. And if Blue Flight had been made earlier before they signed their new policy, because remember the Blue Flight went pretty early in the morning. So uh, I, I guess lawyers can have fun with that one. <laughs> but uh, so there is a separate designation, whether if in people such as yourself think it's significant enough to separate what a, uh, what a commercial space tourist does. They're actually not called space tourists. They're called space flight participants because of the liability they face. The space tourist is a press nomin. Uh, uh, notation, but doesn't have any meaning in FAA legal uh, parlance or in any of the commercial space acts. So, um, y you know, if one thinks there should be better demarcation so that these are not considered equal, I can certainly understand that. But um, I also think that, look, they're kind of like the barnstorming pilots, you know, where they took a lot of risk and uh, and prove that, you know, they could make, you know, private space flight could be safe, that the protocols, the 
the checks on the rockets, the safety procedure. And this is really critical for Blue because it's, it's all AI. There's no pilot aboard Blue. You know, there are pilots aboard Virgin. So, you know, if something goes wrong uh, and the control center back on Earth can't deal with it or the pre-programmed programming can't deal with it, they train the crew in emergencies, but I don't know exactly what they can do because there's no controls in that cabin for them to take over. How in so the world, I, David, this is a really important point. How in the world did the FAA qualify for civilians to ride in a, in a spacecraft that literally they had zero control over? Zero. Well, they demonstrated that the, the, the programming and the backups and the redundancy for, for automatic intelligence and redundancy and all of that uh, worked. And they flew the, the required test flights, and they went through the test protocols that were required, and Blue Origin passed. You know, they were out there in Texas, you know, testing it for many years. I know Blue is pretty tight to the vest. In well, as far as I know, they had 15 flights before the one that Bezos went up on, right? Well, they thought that was enough. <clears throat> I, I used to do shows with, with Gary Hudson, who had Rotary Rocket before it went under, a uh, very well-known rocketeer, and other people. When all of this was being planned, and one of my favorite questions was, is, is private space tourism, I'll use the word space tourism, uh, really going to be safe? And how many test flights would you want to see a vehicle go through before you'd climb on board? And I remember one show, and I'm pretty sure it was Gary, but don't I won't swear to it, who said that there'd have to be at least 50 and maybe more test flights uh, because a lot of crazy stuff happens with rockets. Okay, so you, you said 15. I don't know how many test flights Virgin has had, but Virgin has had accidents. And how many test flights have they had since their Well, they, they had their one major accident, which was incredibly stupid pilot error. The, 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 right, the, right, but, but I'm, just, I'm just saying they, they have had accidents. Most accidents turn out to be probably pilot error, but um, nobody's had close to 50 test flights. And uh, but they were approved, and uh, why you know did they met the requirements? And so I I guess uh, the FAA signer space flight participants is because these are experimental flights, and they're not equal to getting on an airplane and flying as an airline passenger from point A to point B, and a rocket does not qualify for the same kind of flight rules and safety requirements as an aviation product does, an airplane product does. It's a different part of the FAA regulations, and it's much riskier. It's much more experimental, and um, and I guess um, whatever Blue did and whatever uh, Virgin did, they got passed and approved. And I remember just a couple of months ago, the FAA cleared both Blue Origin and Virgin to carry space flight participant commercial passengers on board for the first time before they were carrying their their own people and their own researchers, uh, although this was the first time for Blue. But anyway, they got approved, but it's real interesting that Blue is all automatic. There is no pilot on board. Now, I don't know all of how those crew people are trained in case there's an emergency and they lose link with the ground or the 
or the program gets you know screwed up somehow so they uh, don't even have an onboard computer with sensors that takes control in the case they lose the link with the well, ground well they might and and again i have not ever seen what the backup safety is in the capsule if they lose uh, their command or their programming for the mission and maybe other people have seen it I have not and I I would love to know what it is but I don't know what it is but maybe they have so much redundancy at the local level in the cabin uh, and maybe someone on the cabin has a designated role to start pushing the buttons to activate it uh, but I don't know. Well, they probably start with redundancy, you know, more than one radio link, more than one transmitter, more than one oh, receiver. Yeah, because remember, you, you, with, with Blue Origin and with Branson as well, <clears throat> you're basically going straight up and down. So it's line of sight over New Mexico or line of sight 60 miles down over Texas. So, um, you know, you, you're not like going downrange. So as long as you have line of sight, it should be pretty reliable. Uh, particularly if you well, have redundant, and it, and, and it worked, and it was a safe flight. So, whatever systems they have on board to do this with AI and uh, and redundancy and and whatever training that crew or those spaceflight participants have in case there's an emergency, then um, it worked. Now, I'm I'm sure they have training on what to do if the parachutes don't fully work. And they have a hard landing. I'm, I'm sure they're trained how to get out of the spaceship and, and how to make a run for it. Uh, so I'm sure that's part of their training. But weren't they, uh, they all lose, wearing weren't they all wearing parachutes? It looked like it to me, but I never got clarification on that. And other people I know in the industry who saw what I saw, and we were all asking each other because we were on calls together. You know, and we had. 10 people on the phone line and stuff, we said, that looks like they're wearing a, a parachute on their back. And everybody thought that's what they were wearing, but I've not, again, seen confirmation of that. So maybe that's their escape plan, how to open the hatch and bail out. I, I but, don't but, know, but, but, but you see, need to be at a certain altitude to do that. I was going to say above a certain altitude. <clears throat> now, as I understand it, the uh, prep for Branson's flights, which is basically a space plane, are very right. different and much longer than the prep for Bezos, which is the ballistic up and down Alan Shepard flight. I did not notice anybody prepping for parachute jumps because the way you prepare for a parachute jump is you jump out of an airplane in a parachute, right? Or you do static lines off a tower or something like that. Yeah, I don't, know, I, so. don't, I didn't. And what I'm intrigued with, there was kind of wall-to-wall -wall coverage, but these critical questions I've never seen addressed, either on anything so the, written about Branson or about Bezos. And I'm wondering now kind of why. Well, um, I, I don't know what their prep consists of completely. Um, I, I do know that... You know, Virgin is a, a whole different experience than Bezos. Though, you know, those parachutes could be, it could be part of a system where you're thrown out of the capsule, and even if you go unconscious, that parachute's going to open and do everything automatic, like a pilot ejects out of a military plane and let, he's knocked unconscious or he can't function. 
when he gets down to a, a certain altitude, that parachute's going to open, and it's very, very reliable. I mean, the guy may be hurt. He may even not be around anymore, but he's coming down on a parachute uh, that may open automatically. For all I know, those parachute packs are set to open automatically, and you're going to free fall, and, and maybe somehow they get ejected out of the capsule if there's a problem. How would they get uh, and, ejected if they're not in ejection seats? And I'd have seen... No, who knows? Maybe maybe the bottom opens up like a. But you see, we. But but David, we. I don't know. We but we should know. That should have been part of the coverage. I mean, in my day doing this, we covered everything. Everything. And can you imagine Cronkite or Jules Byrne or or uh, (laughs) any of those guys? Jules Bergman, yeah, not Jules Byrne. Although (laughs) I bet he he would have done a great job. He would have done a great job. Yes. can you imagine them not talking about emergency procedures? Uh, well, isn't that the know, first on, thing you think of? I mean, Bezos was kind of being cheery about his family, was really happy to get him back on the ground, and the hugs he got and all that, because apparently his wife was not happy that he was going to go on the first, quote, commercial flight after 15 test flights before. Uh, I, I, I just, I love the idea of this, but the secrecy, particularly around well, Bezos, I find very, very troubling. Well, I would love to know what their emergency procedures are. But here's another question that I would like to know. I'd like to know what happened to these people's life insurance. Did, did it cover them on an accident? Did the life insurance company say, hey, if you do this, uh, you're on your own. You know, this is going to be an exclusion. Did they have to get special insurance like you get when you join the military, although you don't get much, but it pays off even if you get blown up with an IED. But, I, I, you know, like I know adventure travelers that go diving with uh, shark tanks and their life insurance and their corporate board policy. You mean you mean those cages, those open cages? Yeah, and those, and those steel cages won't allow them to do it or their their life insurance that uh, is with them through the company, for example, won't cover them in those kinds of adventure things. So I, I just well, wonder... Well, hang on, hang on, hang on. As, 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 as the space business guy here tonight, you've raised a really interesting point. If Bezos and Branson are trying to kickstart a whole new industry, the biggest impediment is always money. And what happens if you have accidents? I mean, going back to even pre-commercial days, you know, NASA, we always thought, and I had friends who recommended that each of the astronauts, you know, videotape a testimonial to why if something terrible should happen to them, the program should go forward. Now, NASA never adopted any of these ideas, which I thought was kind of dumb and short-sighted, but there was a lot of discussion after Challenger, you know, was the program going to come to a halt, et cetera, et cetera. You can obviate a lot of that by making up front very deliberately that, let's say, Blue Origin or Virgin is indemnifying the insurance. So if something awful happens, they and their families are taken care of in a very lavish way. And that would allay a lot of fears, plus the transparency in what actually happens if something goes wrong, goes wrong, goes wrong. Quite the opposite happened. There were, while all of these spaceships were being developed over the last 20 plus years, 
the industry worked on liability laws, and so uh, most states and where you would launch from and other parties have liability laws in place that can uh, shield the spaceship company and other specific parties from litigation uh, by families and people that are hurt or killed. Interestingly, they don't shield for third-party property damage, and that gets insured for. So your rocket blows up on the pad and blows up a hotel two miles away. Third property property damage, can you can get coverage to protect that, and you have a maximum insurance loss that you're supposed to but carry. David, David, but, David, isn't this a huge impediment to the industry? Because who in their right mind, given that there is a finite chance something will go wrong and you'll be killed, wouldn't virgins, you, wouldn't you think... Virgin, go ahead. Well, all right, go well, ahead. I was going to say, Virgin sold over 600 tickets when a lot of these liability and litigation discussions were going on. And I remember lots and lots of attorneys coming on my space show program talking about the lit- litigation, the liability law, how the, the space industry pushed for the liability laws because they realized that there's no industry if you if you have uh, kind of unlimited liability. And so um, the people, I'd interview people who bought Virgin tickets and they, it, it didn't stop them. But what did concern a lot of them was that their life insurance would be voided. Now, I remember when I got out of the Navy in the very early 70s, I was a, a hobby scuba diver. I wasn't a Navy diver, but the Navy taught me to dive. And I had learned to fly in college, and I was a single-engine seaplane and, and land pilot. And my life insurance did not want to cover me for scuba diving. I had to to find companies that would let me buy an addendum that limited me to something like 30 feet or 60 feet or something like that. And the same thing with uh, flying a private plane with me being piloting it, even though I was licensed. And I went to AOPA, the American Association Pilot Association, American organization, and a couple of others that issued pilots of general aviation aircraft different kinds of insurance. Now, I'm dating myself going back to the (laughs) 70s, so I don't know the market for any of this now because for health reasons, I haven't been able to dive for a number of years, and and the same thing for eye problems. I didn't fly for the last 20 or 25 years. I don't know if, if flying and diving have become standard risk for life insurance or not. I'm sure your listeners know more about that than I do. But I do know that these are big issues for adventure travelers, and I would imagine spaceflight. And I would like to know if the press had been on their balls, on their toes, I should say, (laughs) uh, they would have explained what you do in an emergency in both vehicles. They would have said, hey, are you wearing a parachute? That looks like a a fighter pilot's parachute pack. Does it open at an automatic altitude? Do you have to be conscious to open it? There's a thousand questions you could ask if they said, yes, that's a parachute. And I I would say, what about your life insurance? Is it valid if there's a problem on this flight for your family? Nothing. And the companies didn't volunteer the information. 
but I'm just curious. I, I would have liked to have known. Well, does this go to kind of the demographic of the people that both Branson and Bezos are trying to appeal to, which is bas- basically I, I, young, single, hedge fund, multimillionaires overnight, that kind of thing? Well, I think a lot of people are, are older. Maybe they're not my age, but they're older and, and they have a lot of money. And uh, so I don't think it's all just, you know, young hedge fund, Wall Street people making a lot of money or 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 tech people coming out of Silicon Valley. I don't know if they're, what their profile is for that. I'm sure they would uh, like to protect their families and estates. So, uh, and I, I've seen... The contracts years ago from Virgin, I've never seen a Blue Origin contract, and, and that's another issue for me is, you know, what e- actually exists for Blue to sell to customers. In that press interview, I know I'm changing the topic, he didn't list a price for his flight, and he says they're going to do two more flights this year, maybe, and what? how are they going to sell their flights? Are they? Do they have any flights sold for 2022? I mean... And and then they got one vehicle. You know, one of them may have two vehicles. How do you build a business with one vehicle? Think about starting a rental car company or an airplane company. Uh, you, you're going to do it with one rental car, with one plane? <laughs> and, and they don't have... They don't have mul- How do you run a business this way? So a lot of the criticism on Bezos was as a rich guy, you know, doing it as a hobby. And the, the damn Blue Origin... Except for the new Glenn and the other rocketry, which we can get to later, does have an appearance sort of as a hobby because he couldn't answer the question of how it's going to be run as a business and and do flights for 2022. And if they go to Texas to launch, there's no services for people out there. Branson puts on a huge show. I mean, a guy is an, a phenomenal showman. And a branding expert, and oh, if I if I was offered the choice, I would go with Branson over Bezos, and you know why? <laughs> why is that? Because there's a huge run up. It's not like you know sex oh, yeah. where the organ is, or the orgasm happens in thirty seconds. You've got days. You've got an hour going to altitude under the big, uh, you know, uh, uh, air, yeah. aircraft. Yeah. It, the, uh-huh. the, the, there's a whole run up. A whole surrounding frame to those three or four minutes of 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 zero gravity and bezos is just you know wham bam thank you ma'am yeah you saw what when they landed out there in the in the desert in in texas and they bring a little three three stair (laughs) thing up so that you can walk i mean it it it, there's it you know it's more like wagon stage um but but if you're going to run it as a business it would seem to me you're set up to handle people. I'll tell you what, and, hold it there. We're at the top of the and, hour, and we will you know, obviously so it, come back to all of this. Uh, My guest this morning is Dr. David Livingston. We're talking about the side of this that no one talked about. You know, you're a middle-aged guy. You clawed your way to the top. You made a few million dollars. You've always wanted to, um, you know, go into space, even if only for a few minutes but you've got a family, you've got relatives, they need support, you've got a company, you've got responsibilities. Who insures you for your three or four minutes of joyriding on the off chance, higher 
than for commercial airliners that something bad can happen. And how come no one has covered this in any of the coverage of this launching of the second age of space? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.